Hello and welcome to the Personal Injury Pod from St. John's Chambers, a series of podcasts dealing with all things personal injury. My name's Jonathan Linfield and I'm here with Matthew White and we are both barristers in the personal injury and clinical negligence departments of St. John's Chambers in Bristol. And today we are going to be talking to you about highways. Over to you, Matthew. Yeah, thanks, John. The law when you're looking at highways is more complicated than a lot of people realise. I say complicated, uh, the word interesting is really what I think, but um, not everybody shares that view. The idea is we're going to explore some of what I call interesting, what other people call complicated. Because, put simply, uh, if you know what the complexities are and how they work, then you're going to win more cases, whether you're for a claimant or a defendant, than you would if you didn't know where the complexities are. Absolutely. And of course, if someone has a tripping accident, there's all sorts of potential causes of action. The most obvious one that comes to mind is obviously the, the Occupiers Liability Act of 1957, the duty to take reasonable care for your visitors. But that's only owed to visitors. And other potential ways to claim exist. And one of the ones we're going to be focusing on, and the one we're going to be focusing on, is highways. Yeah, you've, you've hit on something important there, John, because it is important to identify uh, that we are talking about highways in part because the occupier's duty doesn't apply to highways. But we've got got a fair way to go before we get to understanding that. So the plan is what we're going to do is work our way into it by talking about different situations and what different types of highways we've got and then work our way back through the different duties. The first thing we've got to do is get straight what a highway is and what it isn't. First thing, it's got to be a way. That is... It can't be a highway at all if it doesn't have that essential characteristic of a highway. Um, So, for example, a wide open space can't be uh, a highway. Uh, It's got to go from A to B. It's got to have the essential characteristic of a highway. Right. So we're talking about things that are a bit of a defined route to take you from one place to another, not just, as you say, a wide open space. So once we've established that something is a way i.e. not just a big open space and it does actually take you somewhere. How do you know if it then is a highway or not? Yeah, it's a good question. (laughs) You'd think the answer would be easy. You'd think, well, there's a Highways Act. Just look in the Highways Act because that's bound to tell us uh, what the definition of a highway is. I'm afraid not. It's one of those acts that um, the clue isn't in the name, a bit like the Protection from Harassment Act that doesn't tell you what harassment is. Um, So we're back to the common law definition, which is a public right of passage. And if I quote from Halsbury's Laws, because that's what you'd do if you were in front of a judge, uh, that is to say a right for all His Majesty's subjects at all seasons of the year freely and at their will to pass and repass without let or hindrance. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful. I very much prefer Stephen Sovain's definition from his excellent book on highway law, which is simply a public right to pass over a defined route. And I'm going to say that a few times because by saying it over and over again, you can actually make a number of points just by orally underlining different words because it's got to be a public right to pass over a defined route, a public right to pass over a defined route, a public right to pass over a defined route, and a public right to pass over a defined route. So you've got to have each bit of it. It's got to be public, it's got to be a right, it's got to be to pass, and it's got to be a defined route. And every bit of that matters. All right, let's start with the last bit then. Defined route. That seems pretty straightforward, as in a defined route takes you from one place to another, just like we were just talking about The essential characteristics of a highway are that they take you from one place to another. So let's move on to one of the more tricky points of that variously 
enunciated sentence, Matthew. Uh, how do you tell if there is a public right? Uh, okay, it's a good question because just because the public use it, it doesn't mean that they have got a right to use it. They might be using it for some other reason. And you need to know if there's a right uh, that's been created to know if the highway's been created at all. And there's some statutory complexity that we don't need to get into because... You can create a highway by construction, by agreement or by dedication or a formal order, but the cases never really turn on that. It's always whether or not there has been a common law creation of a highway. And so that's what we need to talk about, common law creation, really. Okay, so under the common law, the creation of a highway as I understand it, is all about dedication and acceptance. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. And acceptance is usually dead easy because if the public use it, then hey, presto, um, you've got acceptance proved, essentially. So the issue in the case is almost invariably whether or not the landowner dedicated the route to the public. So if we're looking for the landowner dedicating the route to the public, would I be right in saying that what we often have is someone in a long red coat coming out, waving a bell and making loads of noise saying, I hereby dedicate this route to the public and therefore everyone shall know that this route is for the public. No. Or is that a bit optimistic? <laughs> yeah, that is a bit optimistic. And not only because if you're the kind of character who's dedicating your land as a highway, you probably don't don the red coat and ring the bell for yourself. You, you get someone in to do that. That sort of express dedication can happen, not with a guy in a bell, but you can have an express dedication by a landowner, but very, very much more often often than not, you don't have evidence of an express dedication um, because either it didn't happen or there's no record of it. Okay, so presumably then a good place to start about whether it has been dedicated is to ask the landowner. Yeah, you could do if you can find them. Um, it's a bit like the A-team if no one else can help and if you can find them, maybe you can ask the landowner. Uh, but I wouldn't because I'm not convinced that you can necessarily take what they have to say as gospel. Yes, and I suppose also they might just be wrong, even if they think they're right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So thinking about then, if we can't rely on the landowner and they don't come out in the big red coat, what's the real test? How do we know if there's been dedication? So I can give you a simple three-word answer. It's all the evidence. Um, the court needs to look at all the evidence to determine whether or not there has been dedication of the land as highway by the landowner. Yeah, and often a good place to start is... Have the public used it for 20 years? Often that's a question that you get asked either by solicitors or in various other circumstances. Is that enough to prove 20 years use? There's quite a bit of complexity that needs unpacking in that question. Um, 20 years isn't enough and less than 20 years is not necessarily not enough. I'm going to need to break that down a bit. So 20 years can be a starting point because if there's been 20 years of uninterrupted use, then there's a statutory presumption that the landowner intended to dedicate. Um, but there are tripwires here because that statutory presumption is rebuttable and sometimes a landowner will do something to rebut the presumption. The easiest thing for them to do is to stick up a sign saying this land is not dedicated to the public. You quite often see little roads that have private road type signs on them. Sometimes they close a gate or something like that once a year. I can remember when I was practising in London, um, once a year the guys would close the gate so you couldn't get from Temple Tube into Middle Temple without them stopping you and saying, what are you doing here? And you'd say, well, I'm going to Chambers. And they'd say, oh, right, OK, off you go then. Um, and they were just doing it to demonstrate that it wasn't a free rite of passage at, at all times or all through the year. Now, 
a mistake that I quite often see is people assuming that you've got to have 20 years of uninterrupted use without the sign and without the guy locking the gate to prove a dedication, but you haven't. The 20-year rule just gives rise to that rebuttable statutory presumption, but you don't actually have to have any period of use before a court will determine, yes, there has been dedication here. You look at all the evidence. All the evidence might only point one way and suggest that there was an intention to dedicate. The case that I go to for this, because it's relatively recent, is Young and Merthyr Tidville. Um, it's relatively recent and I was in it, so I can remember it, obviously. There it was a old colliery that got turned into a park and there were paths going through it and the period of use was under four years but everything suggested that the council intended to dedicate the path to the public use and so the court found that it had been dedicated the public accepted it hey presto highway thinking at this stage matthew it would it be worth saying something about if it has been used for 20 years or whatever period the when is the dedication said to have happened? You can, and it might come relevant for other statutory questions that we get to later on. But the, the answer is the presumption of dedication is at the start of the period, not at the end of the period. So what your 20 years user is showing is that the landowner dedicated it 20 years ago, not that he dedicated it after 20 years use, unless the statutory presumption is rebutted, of course. All right, well, let's pause there because there's a lot there that we've talked about. We've started by ensuring we've got a way, and that's your defined route that isn't just a big open space. We've then established that there's been dedication and acceptance, so therefore we've got ourselves a highway. But, as you said right at the very beginning, Matthew, it has to be a highway maintainable at public expense before the Highways Act 1980 duty is engaged. So what makes it a highway maintainable at public expense? Okay, there is a simple one-word answer to that question, and the answer is statute. There is a list of things in the Highways Act 1980 that triggers this creation of a highway maintainable at public expense. You can break it down really into three broad circumstances. One of them is super easy. Uh, if there is a statutory procedure followed, what people think of as adoption, then there's never realistically a dispute. A, a council, a highway authority will accept that a highway is highway maintainable at public expense once that procedure has been gone through. The more interesting categories are the two categories that are in section 36 of the Highways Act 1980. One of them is if it used to be, before the 1980 Act, a highway maintainable at public expense, it still is. And the other broad category is a list of certain circumstances in which the highway is regarded as highway maintainable at public expense. Both of those is complicated, I'm afraid. Um, I'll take, uh, if it used to be highway, it still is. Are you happy to take the list? Sounds perfect. Off you go. So if it used to be highway, it still is. Um, it's, I love this. It's interesting history here because what you get from the 1980 Act is this pointer back. It says, look back and see if it was highway maintainable at public expense before. That leads you back to the 1959 Highways Act. What that did was to take away the responsibility for maintaining highways from the inhabitants of parish at large and say, right, those highways all become highways maintainable at public expense. 
But that, of course, gives rise to the question, was it maintainable by the inhabitants of the parish at large before that 1959 Act? So it doesn't get more complicated. You keep following the history backwards, and if you're into it, it's great stuff. But you get back to 1835 and the 1835 Highways Act, and imagine in your mind a costume drama going on with the ladies on their way to Mr Bingley's ball in their carriage, unhappy, perhaps, about the state of the roads. Uh, You have the context for what's going on. At that time, all roads are the responsibility of the inhabitants of the parish through which the road runs. And the 1835 Act said, no more. The roads need to be maintained to a standard that's effectively overburdensome to the inhabitants uh, of the parish at large. So from this point onwards, if a new road is created, it is no longer the responsibility of the inhabitants of the parish. So what that means is if it existed before 1835, it was the responsibility of the inhabitants of the parish at large. 1959 Act turned it into highway maintainable at public expense and 1980 Act says it still is. So old roads, meaning pre-1835, and you're in. It's highway maintainable at public expense. Notice in passing, if it was created after 1835 and the statutory procedure wasn't followed and it's a road... That means no one is liable to repair it, and there are still roads that fall into that category. That same idea was extended in 1949 to public paths, which had been the responsibility of the inhabitants at large up to that point. After 1949, they wouldn't be unless an adoption procedure was followed. Uh, So what that means is there are out there roads built after 1835 that no one is liable to repair and paths built after 1949 that no one is liable to repair. They're unusual, but they're out there. That, I think, is a tour through the if it used to be highway maintainable at public expense, it still is. Over to you for the other bit that the Highways Act deals with. Yeah, that is a, some might say, complex, we might say, interesting tour of the history of the statute books relating to highways. So by comparison to the trawl through the historical statute books, you'd think that the list, at least being a list, would be straightforward, yes? You would think it is straightforward, although you might have already picked up by now that these statutes do hide some tripwires for the unwary. And I can tell you that this list has caught out plenty of litigants uh, over the years. Yes. So what I'll do is, first of all, I'll go through the list and then we can think about some of the interesting points. So The headline is, this is section 36 of the Highways Act 1980, subsection 2. And that tells us that all of these are highways maintainable at public expense. A, a highway constructed by a highway authority, otherwise than on behalf of some other person who is not a highway authority. B, highways constructed by a council in their own area, pursuant to Housing Act powers. A highway that is a trunk road or special road, that's C. And then D to F are various footpaths, bridleways created in consequence of various other orders. Um, But it's those first two, A, a highway constructed by a highway authority, and B, highways constructed by a council in their own area pursuant to Housing Act powers that usually matter. So I'll take the first one. I'll take B and you take A. Matthew, how's about that? Yeah, so I'm doing highways constructed by highway authorities other than on behalf of someone else. No problem. You go first. All right, so highways constructed by a council in their area pursuant to Housing Act powers. An interesting distinction there to think about is that what it actually mentions is highways constructed by a council. 
So a different definition than a highway authority, but it matters because essentially what that means is it catches all highways that are built on council housing estates because the only way that councils can build those is using Housing Act powers. So if they build a highway, then it is highway maintainable at public expense by default. And that was the exact situation in a case that people that either know about this area of law or are going to look into it, we'll see, is Gullickson and Pembrokeshire County Council. Gullickson's a good bridging case. I'm going to jump in because there's obiter comment in Gullickson that relates to the bit that I'm dealing with, highway constructed by a highway authority, otherwise than on behalf of some person who is not a highway authority. I'll just translate that into slightly less statutory language. What it's saying is, if a highway authority built it, it's highway maintainable at public expense. And in Gullickson, there's this comment that... Because councils are single unitary entities, it doesn't matter which bit of the council built a highway, it was built by the highway authority, providing that the council is a highway authority. So it could be built by housing or parks, uh, but if it's the body that is also the highway authority that built it, then it was built by a highway authority. So for some years, everybody was working on the basis that if a highway authority ever built it in whatever capacity, then it was highway maintainable at public expense, if it was highway. But Barlow and Wigan has recently determined that that is wrong. It's only if the highway is constructed by a highway authority acting as highway authority that it's highway maintainable at public expense. And that is fabulous news for highway authorities because it had previously been thought that if their parks department or whoever had built a path that had somehow become highway over time through inferred dedication perhaps and acceptance by the public, uh, then that was highway maintainable at public expense and they'd then start owing the statutory obligation to maintain it as such. But now we know... It's only if it was their highway authority function that built it that it is highway maintainable at public expense. And the thing is, if their highway authority function built it, then they probably know that it exists as highway and they probably intended it to be highway maintainable at the public expense in the first place. So um, local authorities, highway authorities will have less trouble on that than they used to. And while I'm talking about traps, spot the trap in Gullickson. If the highway is built pursuant to Housing Act powers, then it's highway maintainable at public expense. That's, that's your point, right? That um, Gullickson, what they did was they built a council estate, and so that the paths through the council estate, if they were highways, were highway maintainable at public expense. Absolutely. Now, what's happened is, since then, there's been huge numbers of stock transfers of council housing from councils to uh, housing associations and such like. And at least some councils stopped worrying about the highways in those stock transfer estates because they thought, well, off our books, we've got rid of it. But just because there's a stock transfer doesn't stop a highway that was a highway maintainable at public expense because it was built by a council pursuant to Housing Act powers being a highway maintainable at public expense. So the highway authority still owe a duty under the Highways Act. All right. So we have worked our way up from the bottom. We've said whatever you're looking at has to be a defined route. It's got to take you from one place to another. It has to be a highway. That is the public right. It's been dedicated and accepted in all the ways we've talked about. And then it is highway maintainable at public expense. If it's been adopted using that statutory procedure, if it's old enough doing Matthew's trawl through the history books, 
Was it built by a highway authority acting as a highway authority or by a council acting under their Housing Act powers? And a few other ways to become highway maintainable at public expense that we skipped over because they don't normally cause us that much trouble. Nice summary. We need to get to the so what about all of this. Why should we care if it's highway or highway maintainable at public expense? So what we've just done is we've just looked through some questions. You've got to ask the right questions in the right order. Is it a way? If so. Is it a highway? If so. Is it highway maintainable at public expense? Why do we care? Well, we care because... The answer to those questions determines whether or not a duty of care is owed at all to someone who's on the way or the highway uh, and what the standard of the duty is. So what we'll do is work our way backwards through the duty. So we worked our way through, is it a way? Is it a highway? Is it a highway maintainable at public expense? Now let's have a look at the duties in reverse. If it's a highway maintainable at public expense, John. Right. The reason that we want to know if it's a highway maintainable at public expense is because the position on the duty is really straightforward. You know who your defendant is, it's the relevant highway authority, and you know what the duty is, it's section 41 of the, of the Highways Act 1980. And what that says is that highway authorities owe a duty to maintain highways maintainable at public expense for which they are responsible. That's what the statute says. What the case of Mills and Barnsley tells us is that means that the claimant has to prove, if they're bringing a claim under the Highways Act, that the highway was dangerous in the sense that in the ordinary course of human affairs, danger may reasonably have been anticipated from its continued use by the public. Secondly, that the dangerous condition was created by a failure to maintain or repair. And thirdly, that the injury resulted from that failure. Important to note at that point, actually, it is important that what you have identified has in fact arisen from a failure to maintain or repair. Quite often, um, you can see perhaps something's been built in the way that it has, and it's not as a result of deterioration. So that's one thing to, to look out for that I've seen missed before. There is also, however, contained within the Highways Act in, at section 58, in the event that that claim is based on a highway which is actionably out of repair, that highway authority then have a statutory defence if they can prove that they took such care in all the circumstances as was reasonably required to secure that the part of the highway to which the action relates was not dangerous for traffic. And in practice, what highway authorities seek to do to make out that defence is by inspecting the relevant highway regularly and remedying any defects they find couple of points to note on that very quickly. Firstly, saying we don't have enough resources to inspect the highway as much as we would like is no defence. And that's Wilkinson and the city of York from 2011. And that reasonableness of a system can be considered on a Bolam type basis. And that's Devon County Council and TR. And that's another one of yours, isn't it, Matthew? It is. Yeah. And that Bolam test comes in really handy. So that's what does a reasonable body of people doing the same thing do and it comes in handy because local authorities are pretty good at cooperating and agreeing sensible standards um, and it can be really helpful when you've got a case i use it particularly in scrim cases where it's the slipperiness of the road surface that matters it also helps in winter maintenance cases from time to time um, where you look around neighboring uh, highway authorities and ask well what do they do because if you can show that the defendant is doing something the same as the neighbours, it helps the defendant. And if a claimant can show that this is a highway authority out on their own, then it helps the claimants. So, so the Bolam test can be really useful. 
All right. So summarizing that, the so what of why do we care if it's a highway maintainable at public expense is that the claimant then has to prove a dangerous defect which caused their, their accident and the burden of proof, if they can prove that, then shifts to the defendant to show that it took such care as was reasonable, but that the accident happened in any event. So let's take a step down from where we started then, Matthew. What's different if it's only a highway but hasn't made it to that grand status of highway maintainable at public expense? Yeah, let me start with what's the same. You haven't mentioned it, but let's just pause to notice that it's the same with highways and highway maintainable at public expense. There is no duty of care in either negligence or nuisance, despite the fact that you see it in every pleading you ever see. Every particular claim will say, and or negligently, and or nuisance. No duty of care owed in these circumstances in, in nuisance or negligence. And we're pretty confident about saying that as an absolute, Matthew, but what's authority for that? Uh, there's plenty of cases that say it. I use Alley and Bradford largely because it covers both of them. It covers negligence and nuisance, and so you can rely on one relatively short authority for it. Let me get on to what is the duty, though. I'm telling you what isn't the duty. Uh, in fact, no, I'm going to tell you something else that isn't the duty, because the obvious place you look is the Occupiers Liability Act. And, and the reason you look there is because they replaced the common law for occupiers' duties in relation to the state of premises. So that's why there's no negligence or nuisance duty, because the Occupiers Liability Act got rid of um, those duties needing separate consideration. But here's the significant thing. If you are a highway user, you are not the visitor of an occupier. And the Occupiers Liability Act only applies in relation to visitors. So that's the 1957 Occupiers Liability Act imposes duties to visitors. But you can't be a visitor if you're on a highway. Why? Because if you're on a highway, you are there as of right. So what that means is that you are in a difficult situation because the duty of care that you would otherwise be owed as a visitor you are not, in fact, owed. So you turn your attention to the other source of uh, duties under Occupiers Liability Act, the 1984 Occupiers Liability Act, which applies to non-visitors. Uh, and you look there thinking, well, OK, I'm not a visitor, so I don't have this duty owed to me under the 1957 Occupiers Liability Act. Uh, I'm a non-visitor. Off I go to the 1984 Act. But the trouble with that is the 1984 Act expressly says it doesn't apply to people using the highway. So what that means, or at least so far in litigation has meant, is that a person who's injured on a highway that isn't highway maintainable at public expense is owed no duty of care at all, so can't claim. Right. So that leaves us in the position then where I've got some land I can dedicate for public use away on my land and it's full of holes it's really dangerous and if anyone's injured because it's dangerous they can't see exactly me. right i like the expression full of holes it's um reminiscent of the phrasing in mcgowan the most recent sort of restatement of the old rule in Gotray and egerton where all this comes from uh, that you can dedicate your land full of ruts and holes and the public have to take it as they find it so, yeah, you'd be liable if you did something positive to create a trap. So if you dig a hole and then cover it over with branches and leaves so that someone trips and falls into it or whatever. Um, but if you just let your highway go to rack and ruin, the public have got no redress against you. 
Yes, and it's probably worth making that clear, isn't it? That when we say there's no duty in negligence, what we mean is no duty for doing nothing. If you do, in fact, do something positive, then you can owe a duty in negligence. Quite right, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the old difference between misfeasance and nonfeasance. You, you you owe no duty in relation to nonfeasance doing nothing, but a positive misfeasance duty still arises in negligence in the normal way to people who are foreseeably affected by your actions. But having a bit of land and it being covered in holes and you've not done anything to repair it, it's really dangerous and someone falls over and you say, nope, no duty owed by me must catch a lot of people out. Yeah, it does. Um, it's that rule in McGowan. Um, I said before that was the modern restatement. It is really. It's from the, the mid-90s. It was restated again in that case, Young and Murtha that I mentioned before, where the judge described it as an unlaid ghost of the old common law. But stop the press. There is a possible way around this problem now that, um, again, is seen in Barlow and Wigan that I mentioned earlier. Mrs Barlow tripped on a path in a park and the council tried to spring the McGowan trap saying, ah, well, you, you were on this path in the park. It's highway, but it's not highway maintainable at public expense, so no duty of care is owed. And that turned out to be an error on their part because the path was built before 1949. So you remember that history lesson I gave you earlier on about paths constructed before 1949 were repairable by the inhabitants of the parish and they became um, highways maintainable at public expense. That's what happened to that path. So perhaps the council there would have been better contending that it was um, not highway at all. But what the Court of Appeal had to say about uh, McGowan in Barlow, uh, it's obiter, it doesn't matter. But Lord Justice Bean says that it looks to him as though the true rule in McGowan is that if a claimant's on the defendant's land only because there's a right-of-way there, a highway, then there's no duty owed. So if there's some other reason for a claimant being there as well, then it might be that this rule in McGowan doesn't apply. And that would address a concern of Lord Brown Wilkinson, who, in his judgment in McGowan, was saying, look, I don't like the fact that if a landowner encourages someone onto their land for business purposes... Uh, look in a shop window or whatever, then they can free themselves of liability to look after people that they've encouraged to be there just by dedicating the land as highway. Yeah, so a lot of pitfalls for the unwary there. So what we're saying really, aren't we, is that defendants need to be alive to and look out for the situations about when a way is a highway, but not highway maintainable at public expense. And if claimants find themselves in that situation, they need to be looking for reasons why they were there other than the simple exercise of their right to be there. Find something else as to yep. why you were on the defendant's land. Exactly. And that will be the next interesting development in this area, I would expect. It will be someone trying to use that obiter comment in Barlow to say, all right, well, it was a highway and it wasn't maintainable at public expense, but I wasn't only there because it was highway and therefore the rule in McGowan doesn't mean that no duty of care is owed to me. And the practical reality is that courts hate finding against claimants on the basis of the rule in McGowan because it's so contrary to the sort of modern notion that we're going to look after each other. Uh, judges hate to find that there's a no duty situation. Now, where have we got to? We're working in reverse. We've covered the duty if it's highway maintainable at public expense. We've covered the duty, or more particularly the absence of duty, if it's a highway that isn't highway maintainable at public expense. Let's get on to the duty if it isn't a highway at all. If it isn't a highway at all, the answer is in fact simple. The Occupiers Liability Act now do apply, and it's the usual duty to take reasonable care, as well as in negligence if you want to plead that as well. 
We've got a few minutes left, so let's have a look at what reasonable care means in the context of the Occupiers' Liability Act. Um, and in particular, let's have a look at what it means when you compare it to the Section 41 duty to maintain that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, so again, there is a difference, but it's quite hard to pin down in these circumstances. I think it's fair to, to say that you can conceptualise it as the courts imposing a tougher standard in relation to highways, and often you see the court being tougher on highway authorities than other landowners, although logically the tests are actually quite similar. When you're thinking about a highway, the test is the danger may reasonably be anticipated. And when you're under the Occupiers Liability Acts, looking at a failure to take reasonable care. Have you got any sort of rules of thumb that you apply in your mind when you're looking at either Section 41 cases or Occupiers Liability cases? Well, you will be hard pressed and courts will almost never say that there is a particular size of defect above which it's always dangerous and under which it's never dangerous. But once you've been doing these sorts of cases for a while, you get a good feel for what a court is likely to think when it looks at a defect that is said to be a breach of duty. And you will see that in the round, most authorities will have an intervention level of somewhere between 20, 25 millimetres or an inch in old money. In broad terms, if a trip is over that size, a claimant has a better chance than if it's under that height. Everything is always fact-dependent, though, so you can't really say what a dangerous defect is out of context, and context is everything. Where it is in the road, what might it be nearby? Is there a school outside? Is it right outside a busy shop? Are we in a shopping centre? Are we near a hospital? Are we near an old people's home? All of those things are going to matter. And the same is true in occupiers' cases too. And at this point, it's probably worth mentioning that if you are a claimant in situ, or even a defendant, but particularly for claimants who might be looking at building their case before getting the defendant involved, take good photographs. And what I mean by that is take photographs that use a ruler, that show where the top and bottom is, that show some context, show the wider shot, so many cases that we will all have seen have had 50Ps or highlighters or shoes or someone's finger in it. But if you can get a ruler and you can take some good photographs, that's always going to be helpful. And there are some higher court authorities on the lack of good photos can be fatal. Yeah. And just on that point about the wider angle, don't fall into the trap of thinking that if the area is in a shocking state, that'll do. You need to be focusing in on the defect that caused the trip. That's the James and Prezelli problem that still catches some people out. But back to this quest for a sort of rough rule of thumb. I can remember a case where a lady tripped walking out of a hotel where it was one of those plastic doors that sits in a frame and the frame at the bottom doesn't run flush to the ground so the door comes into the frame and the upstand was 2.8 centimetres and the the hotel's defence was look a million people have been in and out of this door and no one has fallen over it in the past so it can't possibly be dangerous but in context the court of appeal said look just because a million people have used it and there's been no injury before doesn't mean it isn't dangerous and they, they find for the old lady um, with that size of trip. Well, I suspect that we could go on like this and think about all sorts of cases at all sorts of different levels that yeah. we've either won, won or lost on. But um, look, you can always find something to compare to the facts that you've got in your own case, can't you? You can. I, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to put one in at the other end of the spectrum as well, um, which is Pittman and SEB, where it's one eighth of an inch, an upstand on the highway. Um, and you'd think an eighth of an inch defect. No one is going to say, well, that's dangerous. But that, that was a 
case where the claimant succeeded because the court said, well, it's a new and unexpected hazard. Um, seems like a tough decision against the defendant to me, though, that. But yeah, you're right. We, we could go on like that, but I suspect we're out of time. Yes, we are out of time. But if you are interested in what we've had to say and want to read more in detail, please do have a look at the paper Ways, Highways and Highways Maintainable at Public Expense, Avoiding the Trips, which has just been uploaded by Matthew to the St. John's Chambers website. And it has a very handy flow diagram at the back for anyone who wants a quick reference guide to what we've just been saying. But thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Personal Injury Podcast. Keep your ears peeled for further episodes to be released on the channel. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Bye.